the middle of a series through the book of Exodus, but today is the final episode of season one. So that's why the coat. Like, this is the finale. Lots of crazy things happen, and it really ends well, and it ends poorly for other people. So we're going to check all that out tonight. Pretty excited about it, but uh, I thought it was worth celebrating. And in that regard, you know what happens when episode eight shows up? There's got to be that recap, because you've got to remember everything that led up to tonight, because so much has been going on. We've gone through the first 12 or 13 chapters so far of Exodus. And so let me recap briefly for you. First of all, Daniel told us uh, very clearly and very wonderfully in the introduction that Mount Sinai, the uh, rendezvous with the people of Israel following Moses and Aaron, kind of comes to its center point at the Mount of Sinai. It is the middle of the narrative of the book. It's also the center of the book, and it's where great transitions happen. And we are, that's where we'll pick it up in the new year. So this is the last sermon on Exodus in 2023. But we are going to end with a bang because we're ending with the final blow and the final confrontation between Yahweh and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and his armies. This will be the ultimate end to the battle. So we'll be taking a look at that tonight. So the central truth of the book of Exodus, as we've been talking about, is this idea of bearing God's name. The entire book is God essentially sharing his identity with the world. He shares his identity with Egypt. He shares his identity with Moses and then Israel. And we will see tonight that he even shares his identity with the people of Canaan because they become involved in the story before it's all over. So God is sharing his identity. Exodus verse, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7 is, I would say, the central theme or the great summation of the entire book. And we read this a couple of weeks ago, but you can see it again on the screen, and I'll read it for you here again. Yahweh, Yahweh. Again, that means I am. Well, actually, that means he is, he is. But it's God saying, I am, I am. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This is the Old Testament summary of the identity of God. And I would encourage you to consider this uh, statement, this definition in light of Jesus and the Gospels. How does Jesus reflect these exact same qualities as he interacts with humanity? A couple of weeks ago, when I was wrapping up uh, my message, I shared with you what I see as the three great purposes of God around this idea of sharing his identity, and those are on the screen now. Yahweh is always making himself known. Yahweh is always making himself known. We have the revelation of creation. And in creation, anyone on the planet can get to know who Yahweh is, little by little. Anyone who takes the time to consider a moment in nature, the sounds, the activities, what's moving, what's happening, what's going on in the world, all of these things are God whispering to us who he is and what he does. And Yahweh is always looking for people and animals to bless. He is wanting to pour out his goodness into the home we live in, into the places that we are. 
And we've talked a lot so far in both Genesis and here in Exodus about the Edenic blessing, the blessing of Eden, and that's what that blessing is. It's God's goodness surrounding humanity and saying, here's all kinds of resources for you to enjoy, for your pleasure, to build a home, to create, to build together. Yahweh is always looking to bless. But Yahweh must always make right the wrong of sin. Sin is the opposite of God's goodness. Sin is deconstruction and decreation. I have a definition here for our purposes. Sin is the withholding or undoing of blessing. So when you think of Cain and Abel, Cain withheld the blessing of life from Abel. God, Yahweh, had given Abel life, and Cain took that life away. He got in the way of blessing to his brother. He undid the blessing to his brother. And we'll talk more about that as we go. So let's get into the passage for tonight. And I encourage you to open your Bibles and read along with me. We are in chapter 13. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. And the next several paragraphs are evidences of Yahweh's desire to bless. We're going to take a look at three specific blessings that are given to Israel in the story that we're in. So, chapter 3, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. So this is the first blessing of God. He knows his people. He knows their disposition. He knows where they are at. So rather than heading directly east and actually somewhat northeast, directly toward Canaan, the land that he has promised, he takes them actually southeast down into the desert. And he's going to take them there for a season of preparation. He knows they're not ready. If they were to march across uh, the, uh, the southern uh, shore there of the sea of uh, the Mediterranean Sea, directly into Philistine territory within the matter of a couple of weeks, it would be overwhelming. They have a lot of PST, P, PS, PTSD, thank you, from 400 years of slavery, from being told what to do and not being free to do what they want to do. So this is a great uh, consideration on God's part. Let's continue, verse 20. After leaving Sokoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, Yahweh went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people of Israel. What a tremendous accommodation. Why a pillar? Well, because this train was a long train. Who knows how long? Half a mile, a mile, two miles. But if there was a pillar at the front, everyone would be able to see it all the time. You would always know where we are headed, and you would always know day or night where God was leading. The one thing you weren't allowed to was ask the question, are we there yet? Because there really wasn't an answer. You just kept following until that cloud of uh, smoke or fire stood still, and we knew this is where we're going to camp. So this is a wonderful thing that he shares.
I seem to have lost the third blessing in my notes, so I'll share it with you. Joseph had instructed his children 400 years before this event that he wanted his bones to be returned to the land of Canaan. You remember that Joseph actually started life there. Uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob all actually lived in the land of Canaan before they were able to occupy it as a nation. They had a very small piece of ground, and by the time the Exodus, or by the time they moved into Egypt to flee the famine, they were only 70 people, a very small family. But Joseph had great faith in God, and he knew the day would come when God would bring them back to the land of Canaan. And so he said, I want you to take my bones with you and bury my bones in the land of Canaan. And that speaks to the heritage that we have in God. I find great comfort in my family knowing that there are generations of Jesus followers that have gone before me. Remember not long ago, a couple of years ago, I just was having one of those deep um, remunerations about death and just kind of feeling the fear of it, you know, and like, what, you know, what really happens? And just feeling that normal feeling. And then I thought of my mother's father, a humble man who deeply loved Jesus. And I watched at the end of his life how confident he was about his future and how peacefully he died, knowing that he was headed into the presence of God. And I thought, well, if Grandpa Herman can do it, I can do it. And that's the heritage. And that's what Joseph was giving to the children of Israel when he said, take my bones with you. We will go. And I want to be buried in the burial ground of my ancestors. So we have all of this blessing going on. And now here's an opportunity beginning with verse 14, uh, where God, I'm sorry, chapter 14, verse 1, where God makes himself known again. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi Hararoth between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will strengthen Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will, well, let me stop there for just a minute. So, Probably, Pharaoh has sent some spies out to track where Israel is going, to know what their movements are, so that he can lead this giant army and find them and go directly to where they are and capture them and bring them back. And so they've been tracking them and they know where they're going. And so God gives this strategic instruction to Moses, hey, I want you to backtrack now. I actually want you to go back the way you came, and I want you to settle into this little place that feels like a trap. It's a, it looks like you're lost and you made a wrong turn and now uh, your GPS is redirecting you. So he wanted to create some confusion. And so this is why. Here was his purpose. But I will gain glory for myself, Yahweh says, through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. So Israel did this. So I want to remind you, God isn't just revealing himself to Israel. He's revealing himself to Egypt. And he's the same God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, but cannot live, leave sins unpunished. So people can experience God in very different ways. But the inconsistency is not with God. The inconsistency is with humanity. I think often we struggle with so much of the Old Testament, and the, the important thing to understand is the Old Testament is filled with Humanity at a stage of great violence and hatred and fighting all over the globe, in tribes everywhere. Violence and all kinds of, uh, I guess, people at their worst. And so what's reflected in the interaction is that God has to kind of get his feet muddy 
because he's in there with people and he's interacting with them where they are. And what defines or what, what creates the uh, difficulties and the dark places of the Old Testament are really from humanity and from who we are and God dealing us where we are. If you think of yourself as a parent or a teacher or a coach and you're dealing with children, some of those children see you differently than other children. And if you're dealing with children that are tough and difficult, they've had to see the maybe harsher side of you or the more disciplined side of you, or they've gotten a little more energy from you than others. But it's the nature of the child that draws that out. It's not that you're inconsistent in who you are. You want to train and teach each one of those children well and in the same way. But if that child is highly cooperative and is following you and doing what you're asking and loving the other children well, that child probably knows you as tender-hearted and kind. And uh, if those two children talked, they would probably say very different things about who you are. And this is the reality of the Old Testament. All right, let's move on. Verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best charioteers, along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officials over them. And Yahweh strengthened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near, we heard this before, Pi-Hararoth, opposite Baal-Zephon. Now, we don't know where these places are. They, we have not been able to excavate that area. So even though the location was very specific at the time, and everyone in Egypt and Israel would have known where this place was, we don't know where it is. So it could be a number of places along, you know, there's the, the, uh, the Red Sea, but then above the Red Sea, there are rivers and multiple lakes in that area. And so there's been talk of it could have been a lake, it could have been the cove in a lake, it could have been a river, it could have actually been the ocean, we don't know for sure. But they knew, they knew exactly where they were, and they were trapped between the desert and the water. Verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. They're down on the water, so they're below them, they're at sea level, and they look up. And there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, <laughs> no kidding. And cried out to Yahweh. They said to Moses, ah, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to die in the desert? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Such a natural human response. They had been enslaved for so long, I don't think they really felt sometimes anymore just how sad it was, just how inhumane their life was, how unhuman they had become. And now they're wondering, I think maybe what we were doing before might be better than what we're about to do. And do you ever get there? Do you ever get there? You get to that place where God is inviting you into something new, but you're not sure, and you kind of feel like, ah, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm more comfortable with mediocre than I am with adventure. At least I know what I'm up for. At least I'll wake up alive tomorrow. <laughs> it's who we are, and it's how we roll. But now we come to what is the center of tonight's message, 
this beautiful pair of verses here in chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. And it's on the screen so you can see it with me. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. What a promise. What a promise. Hey, you don't need to do anything but trust. Be still. God is going to fight for you. This is a promise. This is a promise that Yahweh gave to Moses to give to the people. And it's an invitation. So you have a choice at this point if you're Israel. Am I going to continue to be full of anxiety? Am I going to be full of fear? Or am I going to accept this promise? And it's a very specific promise. And it's a very short duration. When will this promise be fulfilled? Today. Yeah. Wouldn't you love it if God put a timestamp on all of his promises to you? And you could put them in your calendar? You could know for sure. Because he's promised some things, and sometimes it happens slower than we want it to, right? But this promise comes with a timestamp today. Today, watch. These Egyptians you will never see again. Such an amazing promise. It's similar to a promise that uh, was made uh, during World War II in the UK. This poster was printed uh, by the Crown, and they printed two and a half million of these posters. These were printed and put up at a time when, uh, the UK, when Britain had just entered the war and they knew what was going to happen. They already knew that at this point, Germany will begin bombing us directly. We are that close. And London and England in general is going to be ransacked from the air by bombs. And so this was the encouragement. Keep calm and carry on. Very British. <laughs> Keep calm and carry on. It sounds good, but there's no promise to it. It's just saying it's going to get super bad, but hang in there. And I kind of wonder how many people thought, ah, that sounds great, but why? How can I keep calm? Probably it's a better response. I guess panic and, and uh, you know, freaking out is often not helpful, so keeping calm is good. But it has to be more than a cultural call and more than the statement of royalty. There has to be a promise with it for us to keep calm and carry on. The first time I saw this poster, I didn't know what it was. I was at Five Star Donuts in downtown Portland on 23rd, and I saw the poster, and it was actually blue, and it said, keep calm and eat donuts. And I thought that was amazing. I was all in. But then I found out it was maybe more historically significant than that. By the way, you can go, on to, uh, go online, and uh, you'll find the poster, and it says, keep calm your text here. So you can put anything you want on that poster. So you might consider that as a Christmas present. Okay, let's get back to this promise. The story continues. We'll pick it up in verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Apparently Moses was praying with some panic in his voice. And God said, Stop, go. Raise your staff. And stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will strengthen the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. 
and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and in all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Verse 18, the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Again, all people will know God. Some will know him for good and some for difficulty. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so that neither went near the other all night long. What a beautiful picture of protection. God being able to strategically move his people and actually freezing the entire army of Egypt. All these horses, all these men, unable to move because of the darkness, while God does his powerful work. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Divided the water. Have we heard that phrase before? Where have we heard divided the waters? Genesis, right. How were they divided? Yeah, it was a horizontal divide, right? The waters above were separated into clouds, and the waters below receded from the land and became oceans and seas and rivers. So the water was divided. What is that? That's creation. That's God creating dry land so that people can live. We need dry land. We need dry land to walk on. We need dry land to plant gardens. We need dry land to play. So God was taking creation a step further. And this is a part of what God does. This is what blessing is. God started with an incredible creation, but he continues to create over and over again. Our lives, if we walk with Jesus, are a never-ending experience of creation. He just cre keeps creating in front of us. Keeps creating new relationships, creating new opportunities, creating moments of healing, moments of energizing, moments of rest. God is still creating all around us. This is what the blessing of God is. It's a continuation of creation for you in your life. He keeps creating. But the other side of the story, verse 23, the Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, which is probably around 3 or 4 a.m., Yahweh looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, and listen to this, this is so insightful, let's get away from the Israelites. Yahweh is fighting for them and against Egypt. Remember that it wasn't that long ago, Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh? I don't know who he is. But through this entire story, God has been revealing himself, not only to Pharaoh, but to his nobles, and to his people, and to his army. And now, this Egyptian army is able to interpret what is happening. So what is jamming wheels? That's disorder, that's chaos. What is creating confusion? It's the opposite of creation. This is decreation. And this is what happens when we do not go the way of God. 
the, the only way that is not God's way is a way that is backwards, that is a way of going backwards. It is a way of decreating, of breaking down. Take a relationship, for example, maybe a marriage, maybe a friendship. To nurture it, to grow it, to add to it, to curate it well, is to partner with God in creating a deeper, broader, more strong, more powerful relationship. To break it down, to tear it down, through sin, through neglect, through unkindness, these are all ways of decreation. And things, the wheels fall off, literally, when we decreate. And this is the experience. For those that surrender to the way of Yahweh, creation. For those that fight the way of Yahweh, and who take the blessing of Yahweh away from others, decreation. All right, verse 29. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the seashore. Stand still, and I will fight for you. This was God's promise. Verse 31. And we have this on the screen. <clears throat> and when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of Yahweh displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, Yahweh, and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. It is accomplished. This was God's goal through everything that he did with Egypt and with Israel was to come to this point right here. When Israel saw the mighty hand of Yahweh displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared Yahweh and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Do you see the consideration of God to prepare his people for what's coming ahead? Rather than take them directly into battle with the Philistines, he knew they weren't ready for it. He, he said in his actions, I have a lot to teach you. And that's what Sinai will be all about. Sinai will be the great training camp the great education of what it is to follow God. But here we see the mercy of God. So who got to know Yahweh in this final act? Well, the Egyptians did. One more experience of decreation. After being a country and a nation and a people who steal creation from the Israelites, who take away life, who take away hope, who take away freedom. So then God removes it from them. It's also Israel. Israel will see that if they will trust God and follow Moses, God will fight for them. But I want to skip ahead to one more place for you. This is Joshua 2, verses 9 and 10, and we'll be able to see this one on the screen as well. This is when the 12 spies went up many, many years later. Well, no, this was just a few weeks later, actually. Uh, the 12 spies are sent out to the land of Canaan to see what's there. And they end up spending... Uh, they end up being uh, sheltered with Rahab, and this is what the conversation looks like. And Rahab said to the spies, I know that Yahweh has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on all of us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. The Israelites thought this was just an isolated experience for them in the desert. But God knew that he was creating 
a, a, a tremendous turn, a tremendous pivot for everyone in the region, for the kingdoms that were there and for all the peoples were there. Egypt would never again try to pursue Israel. The army was decimated and Pharaoh was gone. That can't happen again. And Israel knows of God's love and protection for them. And the land of Canaan to where they are going, word spreads. And this single act of opening the sea takes away the courage of all of those in Canaan. And they know that judgment is coming. And I want to remind you too, in reference to the hard things, God waited 400 years to judge Canaan. What was he waiting for? What do the scriptures say he was waiting for? Anybody remember the phrase? He said, the sins of the people of Canaan are not yet complete. That's why he was waiting. It wasn't a careless, I just need to move these people out of the way, but God is always working out his sovereign will with every nation all the time. And it would be naive of us to feel that he just loves the nation of Israel or he just loves Christians and everybody else just has to suffer what happens, whatever God's doing. It's not that way at all. God is working intimately all the time with all peoples and all nations. And he has a plan for all of them. And those plans work together. They are synced up. This is the beauty of the sovereignty of God. And so it was time for the judgment of those, uh, the peoples of Canaan. So, where do we find relative truth for us today? Yahweh made himself known to Israel, to Egypt, and to the inhabitants of Canaan. Yahweh blessed the people of Israel, and Yahweh judged the rulers of Egypt. Do you see the fulfillment of the identity of God? Slow to anger, gracious and full of love, dealing with sin for a short time, but blessing to a thousand generations. What I want you to see tonight is this. Let's go back to that promise that was shared. I'll read it once again. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. This is an incredible example of the promises of God. And there are so many in the scriptures. And what a promise is, is an invitation to faith. It says at the end of this passage that Israel believed, but it wasn't a belief of faith. It, they believed it because it was over. <laughs> they believed it because the promise had been fulfilled. It's similar to what Jesus said to all of those that were present when he did all the miracles that he did. He said, blessed are you who believe, but more blessed are those who do not see all of this and still believe. And that's you and I. And that's every generation since the time of Jesus. We didn't get to see, though it would have been amazing. And yet we believe. And this is God's invitation to all of his people. It's an invitation to believe when we haven't yet received. The gift of faith is believing the promise. The gift of faith is being able to feel within your heart and within your soul that the promises that God has given will be fulfilled. Faith is an invitation to experience reality now in light of the way it will be later. It's going to work out. God will come and get you and take you home. 
God will answer your prayers. God will see you through to an eternity with him. And what he wants to give us in the promise is the invitation to wait and experience the journey from here to there in peace rather than in anxiety. And I can explain that to you, but I'm not very good at it. <laughs> Even today, just looking forward to something in the future and just feeling anxious. And I just love how patient God is. I mean, I've been walking with Jesus since I was in my teens, so 50 years, and still it's so difficult. One might hope that by now you'd be like, I really fully believe the promise, and I am totally at peace. But I'm not. Definitely better off than I was four decades ago. <laughs> I am learning. And this is the call to all of us, as a church and as people of God. God invites you with promises to experience today the hope and the peace that you will be given in the future. That's what faith is. Faith says, I'm so sure of what's coming that I'm going to live in the comfort of what's coming now. I'm so sure in the promise of God's goodness and blessing that it's coming, that even though today it's not my immediate experience, I still can be at peace. I can still wait. My future is not in jeopardy. The promises that God has made are not going to be unfulfilled. But, lest I sound overly naive, I just want to say two more things here to wrap up. Often the way God gets us to those promises, I would say all the time, it's not the way we think. It's not the way we hear the promise, and we think of the shortest distance to get there. And we go, can we go that way? Can we go that way? Why wasn't Israel allowed to go straight into Canaan from Egypt? They weren't ready internally. Who they were, their faith and their trust in God, they weren't ready. And so many times God will lead us towards our promises, but not in the way that we would hope that he does. But here's why. God uses the process of moving us from where we are to where we are going to be to redeem and to heal and to transform. And everything that Israel is going to experience in the wilderness will redeem them, will heal them, and will transform them. And everything that you and I experience between the moment we said yes to Jesus and the moment Jesus welcomes us into eternity is this exodus of being redeemed, <clears throat> of being healed, of being transformed. That's why the difficulty, that's why the circuitous route, that's why it's not straight and simple. We don't want to get there and have everybody ready for the party but us. We want the work of God in the process. I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and make their way up front, and I just want to give you all a, just two minutes to sit in one question. Are you in a space today where even though you've received a promise, you're having a hard time resting in what you're experiencing right now? Are you struggling with doubt about God's intentions, about what he's doing right now? And maybe if it's not for you, it's for someone that you love, someone you're praying for.
But I want to invite you to just think a little bit and pray a little bit and ask God, God, what does it look like for me or for the one I'm concerned about to fully embrace the promise that you've made? Can I let go of the anxiety? Can I let go of the fear? Can I let go of the chronic sin that takes me off track? And can I receive by faith the hope of what's coming? Can I live in the hope of what's coming today and now? It's very difficult. Israel did not do it. I'm sure many people had a very anxious trip across that sea, looking at that water and fearing what was going to happen. How quickly is Egypt coming up behind us? And are we going to make it or not going to make it? But Israel had made the promise. He said, today, you're going to be okay. Today, the army that's behind you will be wiped out, never to be seen again. Today, I will save you. It's an invitation to peace. It's an invitation to grace. It's an invitation to trust. We're going to go on the journey no matter what. We're all in the car. But how will we experience the journey? I used to just want to get to a destination when my wife and I would go on vacation. It was a very stressful experience. And it was really all my fault. I just wanted to get there. I was living in the moment of arriving where we were headed. And Tricia taught me something beautiful. Rick, there are moments before that moment. Can we make them good moments? Can we enjoy the journey? Can we be here 300 miles from where we're going and find something here worth doing? And that's the same invitation God has. Let's be in the moment we're in. You can enjoy the journey if you trust me. And we will get to the destination. But let's enjoy this moment. Take a little time to pray. Mm-hmm.